If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. with the the chalky, flinty pebbles. It was very unlike anywhere he'd ever been before. That was Sarah Foote talking about the rise of Christianity in England. People in the past have written about him as if he was, oh no, uh, driven by some unselfish ideas. I I don't think that's true. He was out to get Israeli to the top. And, uh, uh, but he he set about it in in an exciting sort of way. And that was former Home Secretary Douglas Hurd talking about Benjamin Disraeli. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Matt Elton and I'm books editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. Our new look August issue is out now, featuring leading experts exploring subjects including attacks on Roman Britain, the origins of Martin Luther King's iconic 1963 speech and the American Civil War. You can find the issue in all good news agents and on subscription. See historyextra.com slash subscribe for subscription deals. We also have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, the Kindle Fire and Google Play. For details of our digital formats, including price, content and availability, head to historyextra.com slash digital. This week's podcast explores in more depth two of the new regular features introduced in the August issue. Firstly, my fellow section editor Charlotte Hodgman headed to Thanet in Kent to meet historian Sarah Foote, who shared her thoughts about the area's importance in the rise of Christianity in England. Right, Sarah, so we're we're sitting near the bay um, where it's thought that St Augustine and a group of months landed in 597 AD. But who who exactly was Augustine and what did he want to achieve? Well, we remember Augustine now as the apostle to the English because he's the missionary who came, sent by Pope Gregory from Rome to convert the pagan Anglo-Saxons to Christianity. He was a monk in Gregory the Great's own monastery on the Celian Hill in Rome and Gregory sent him and a group of companions from the monastery to travel overland to England where he knew that the people who lived in Kent were still worshipping pagan gods but had expressed an interest in hearing about the truth of the gospel. And and why do they land here in this, this part of the country? Well, I think they landed in Kent because they'd travelled overland through France and Mm. it's the shortest channel crossing (laughs) it is now it was then. And so it was an easy place for them to sail over from from the Frankish coast. And this is a nice wide, shallow bay with a long flat beach where it was easy to pull up their flat bottom boats. Okay. And um, do we know what Augustine thought about taking on the mission? We know that when they were about halfway between Rome and England, his companions started to get really cold feet about what they were doing. They were worried that they weren't going to understand the language that the English were basically a bunch of hairy barbarians who would beat them up when they got there. And they stopped and they said, in the south of France, and they said, it's nice here, why don't you go back to Rome and ask the Pope, do we really have to do it or could we stay here? And Augustine went back to Rome where he got a bit of a flea in in his ear from the Pope who sent him back and said, look, you have to do this. It's really important because 
they believed that England lay at, at the very edges of the known world. And Gregory thought that by taking the gospel to the English, he was fulfilling the injunction that Christ had given his apostles mm. to take the good news of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And, and why Augustine? I mean, he was, was he just a monk? Or was he... he was just a monk in Gregory's house. He, Gregory must have known him well enough to know that yeah. he could trust him. But because they lived in a monastery, he'd taken a vow of obedience to his <laughs> abbot. He didn't have a lot of choice. And um, Gregory very carefully made Augustine the abbot of the monks who were waiting for him in France. Right. So when he got back and said, OK, guys, it's on, we're going, they had to obey him because their vows made them. And there was no chance of Gregory himself going instead? I think Gregory might have liked to. He, there were earlier stages in his career when he wanted to engage mm. personally in missionary work, but there was too much going. He was running the whole of the church in Rome. He just couldn't be absent for two to three years to come as far away as Britain to do this. So he had to send representatives on his behalf, but he kept sending them letters of encouragement mm. and he'd been writing to the King of Kent and his wife already. And he kept very close personal tabs on what was going on. So the King of Kent knew that Augustine was going to be landing. He knew he was coming. Some of the Gregory letters suggest that the king in Kent, whose name was Adalbert, had written to Rome and asked the Pope to send him missionaries. So in a way, their arrival wasn't totally unexpected, though the king is quite cautious when Augustine does land. Actually, which brings me to my, my next question, actually. What, what, what was his reaction to Augustine when he, when he landed on, you know, in, in, uh, in Thanet? The, the king was eager to listen to what the monks had to say but he was a little bit wary about whether the religion that they were preaching might potentially be dangerous so he didn't bring the monks to him he traveled onto the island of Thanet in, in the sixth century Thanet was still an island separated from the rest of Kent so he crossed the Wonsum Channel and he agreed to meet Augustine outside in the open air so that if Augustine was going to do bad magic it wouldn't work as well as it might inside a building and it's somewhere very close to this beach where we're sitting now, where we believe that that first meeting took place. And that's now marked by a, a cross, isn't it's it? It's now marked by a large standing cross, which was erected in the mid-19th century by Earl Granville on, on his land. Uh, what did um, Britain's religious landscape look like when Augustine landed? There were still some remnants of Christianity from the time when the Romans had lived in Britain and indeed we know that there were still a few churches functioning. There was one in the city of Canterbury. But the Anglo-Saxon peoples who'd come to settle on British shores in the 4th and 5th centuries, they worshipped a pantheon of Germanic gods, um, people like Woden and Thor, but they were also, theirs was a religion which was quite close to the land, so they also worshipped trees, springs, standing stones. Um, their religion was closely tied in with their own identity, their sense of themselves and the sense of the place where they, they were dwelling. So Augustine had quite a big task on his hands mm. and there was an infrastructure of religious practice there already. There were priests, there were temples with shrines inside them and altars on which sacrifices were made to the gods. And the first advice that Gregory gave to Augustine was that he should knock down all those temples because they were dedicated to the kind of gods and he should build new ones and then writing to Augustine's successor Melitus he changed his mind and said actually the people are used to worshipping in these temples so keep the buildings but re-consecrate them and rededicate the altars to the Christian God and then use them for the sacrifice of the mass instead of sacrifices to devils. So Augustine and his monks they were quite sympathetic to the old ways whether they didn't try and come in and change everything all at once? They 
tried to do it they tried to convert incrementally they wanted people to stop worshipping the pagan gods they wanted them to stop making sacrifices to them mm. um, and they wanted them to accept baptism the first Christmas um, in, in Kent Augustine said to have baptised 10,000 mm. people yeah. um, but yes they had, they had to take it gently because you couldn't overturn a yeah. whole way of life at once um, Ethelbert's wife Bertha was already Christian. You, you already mentioned that. That's right. She was a. She came from France, and she'd already. She was already Christian through her her family. Was she? Um, did she have anything to do with the fact that Augustine had arrived in in Britain in the first place? Gregory the Great had sent letters to to Bertha as well as to Ethelbert, and it seems likely that in the privacy of the time that she spent together with her husband, mm. that she had been dripping knowledge of, of Christianity into his ear, and she brought with her a bishop from France whose name was Leotard, and she had a church in the city of Canterbury, um, one of these former churches from Roman times dedicated to St Martin, yeah. where she had been um, attending in Christian services before the monks arrived. And when did the King of Kent actually convert to Christianity? When did... Um, at Christmas in, in that first year after they'd landed in 597. Okay, um, and how, how was that? Do we know how people reacted to that? Did that encourage other people to do the same? Yes, the accounts that we have of this suggest that as soon as the king had made this decision and said, this is the god I'm going to worship, then all his leading men immediately accepted the religion too. And so we call this a top-down method of conversion. You go to the royal court, you persuade the king to convert his leading men, and then it trickles down to the wider population more gradually. But the king sets the example, which then everybody else follows. Um, and you've already mentioned that um, oh, it's getting a bit windy. Um, Augustine and his monks established themselves at Queen Bertha's Chapel in, in Canterbury, which is about 17 miles, I think, from here, um, where he That's first right. landed. Um, how did they then sort of set about converting the city's um, pagan inhabitants, and, and how successful were they in doing that? In St Martin's Church in Canterbury, they lived the kind of monastic life that they'd been living in Rome, but they did it in order to demonstrate to the population what it meant to be Christians. So they preached, they taught about the books of the Bible, the teachings of Jesus. They went on processions through the town. They carried okay. crosses and relics of the saints, and they wore... They, they will have looked very different from the people of Kent. They came from, from Rome. They were Italians by birth. They will have been smaller, darker, wearing foreign clothes, speaking a foreign language because all the liturgy was in Latin and I think much of the the interest of the wider population may have been watching this strange religion and wanting to know more about it so that they could um, understand what it was like so on their way through France they picked up some French interpreters with them who could talk to the English people and, okay. and explain what was going on so they converted by example yeah and, and you mentioned that there were traces of Christianity still in this area or in Britain um, from the Romans. Um, why did that kind of, why did it trickle out after, uh, you know, between the, between the Romans and Augustine's landing? Christianity among the Roman Britons was very dependent on having a functioning Roman province here and mm. after Roman troops were, were withdrawn and, and the um, Roman economy died and it, it ceased to be a satellite of Rome, then all the things that had been associated with the Roman conquest gradually trickled mm. away. But there are parts of the country, especially in, in the west and the southwest, where it seems that Christianity persisted um, right the way through uh, across the Anglo-Saxon settlement period. So, for example, Wareham in Dorset, where there are some very interesting um, surviving gravestones with Celtic names on them. Those almost certainly survive from that period when there's very little Christianity left in England. So 
to all intents and purposes, Augustine and his followers came to a, an open field, mission field, in which to work. Augustine died not that long after he landed. No, Augustine died in, in 602 mm. and um, was um, buried in a church just outside the walls of the city, um, which was first dedicated to St Peter and Paul, uh, but is now known as St Augustine's and became the burial place for Archbishops of Canterbury and Kings of Kent. And, and how much do you think we can attribute the success, his success to Augustine as a, as a person and his, his personality and his, his way of, of doing things? I think we have to put a lot of reliance on, on Augustine personally. He had mm. the force of personality to persuade those reluctant monks to come with him and then to, to enter this realm where they didn't really know what they were going no. to find. They didn't know how dangerous it might be. And his, his willingness to stand up and speak out for the truth of the gospel he believed in. Um, and how far did Augustine himself actually travel outside of Kent? Well, we know a story about one occasion when Augustine tried to get the remaining British bishops on the island to participate in missionary work with him so that they could work together to common ends. And so he travelled quite a long way west of Kent to meet a group of British bishops who come, come from the western part of the country where there's still much more Christianity and they met at a place called Augustine's Oak and the whole meeting was a, a, a complete disaster. They totally <laughs> failed to, cult, complete cultural misunderstanding. <laughs> they took violently against one another and the British went off to do their own thing and Augustine was always convinced that yeah. the British weren't doing enough to, to convert the English. But most of his activities were thereafter coordinated in Kent. And do we have any contemporary sources um, that kind of that give us an idea of what Augustine was thinking or, or how they felt about landing or anything at all? No, there's absolutely... We have no text written in Augustine's own... Um, yeah. Augustine wrote nothing that, that survives now, so we've only got the letters that he carried and the letters that, that Gregory wrote to him. Mm. Um, some questions that he sent to Gregory the Great about how do I deal with particular pastoral problems okay. that I find on the ground, but nothing really about his emotions or, or personality. So. Oh, that's so sad, isn't it? I mean, looking around us, it must have been quite an, quite, uh, an imposing sight. I mean, it's not quite the White Cliffs of Dover, but it's you know, coming up in, a, in a, probably a, quite a small boat, I'd imagine. Yes, and these steep white cliffs mm. and, and the wind and the seagulls and then this, this beach with the, the chalky, flinty pebbles. It was very unlike anywhere he'd ever been yeah, before. And, and for him to, to take on himself that missionary endeavour, knowing that he was going to die on these shores and that, that after landing here that he would never leave Britain again. But never go would, home. Yeah. Right, so we're now at St Mary the Virgin Church, um, which is in nearby Minster and Thanet, which was once the site of a 7th century monastery. Um, who, who founded the, the original monastery here? The first monastery was founded here by the great-granddaughter of the first Christian king of Kent. Mm -hmm. So that's Adalbert's granddaughter, and she was called Aormenberg. She was a princess. She'd been married to a king in the Midland part of England for a while, but she came back to Kent after two of her brothers had been murdered by, probably by one of the leading men at the, at the Kentish court, and she got a piece of land as her payment for their, their deaths. She got this piece of land in recompense for the fact that her brothers had been, had been murdered. And there's quite a funny story that attaches to how she got that land. 
So the king said that in compensation for her two brothers being killed, she could have this piece of land and she could found a monastery on it. And how much did she want? And she said, I like just so much land as my tame deer will walk around. (laughs) And so they started walking and her deer walked around in front of her and she just kept walking on and they made a bigger and bigger circle until she got a really large piece of real estate to found her church in the middle of it. That's very clever. (laughs) Um, And what's Augustine's link to the site? Well, this is probably the church that's closest, physically closest to the place where we think Augustine landed. But Augustine personally had no connection with this site. Um, Augustine landed here in 597. The church is probably founded sometime in the 670s, in the first wave of the founding of monasteries for women in England. And do we know what the first first monastery or the first... Um, Christian site that was founded in this area after he landed or was that not known? Immediately after he landed he didn't establish any church here on the island of Thanet. The first places of worship which are associated with Augustine and his immediate followers are inside the city of Canterbury but he didn't get to go inside the walls of the city until the king had decided that these were safe people to talk to and they weren't bringing bad magic into his kingdom. Okay. And in Augustine's day, the, I mean, it's, 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 the sea's a couple of miles away from the church today, but in his day, it would have come right up to the church, um, That's the, church right, yes. the walls. Um, why would a monastery be founded so, so close to the coast? Well, if you think the ideal of monasticism is to get yourself away from the rest of society and to live a life of solitude and prayer and contemplation. Mm. And so coastal sites are often chosen for founding monasteries and communities of women because they're far away from other settlement. One of the things that marks out this community in Kent is that they made direct economic use of of immediate access to the sea. And we know that they had at least one ship of their own and that it was exempt from paying tolls to the king for trading and that they used to trade both with other parts of England in the the Thames estuary, but also they used to send their their ship over to France and do trading with the people there as well. So they were supporting the using exchange as a way of supporting their prayerful life. Yes. And and what sort of community would have been around this this particular monastery? Well, it was set up in the first instance as a community for women, but it seems very likely that this was on the model of all the earliest female monasteries in England so that it's not a nunnery for women living on their own. It's what we call a double house mm. with two parallel communities, one of men and one of women, with an abbess in charge of the mixed community together. So the men were there to help with the heavy labour to launch that ship when it was setting off to go to France. Um, And also, of course, men in that congregation might have been ordained as priests and and so could serve at the altar, which, of course, women in the 670s weren't allowed to do. Okay, and I suppose they would have also been coming under potential threat as well, being this close to the the coast, do you think, or...? When the house was first founded, I don't think anybody was thinking about the danger of raids from the sea. But Mm. we do know that in the ninth century, this place was directly attacked by um, war bands of of Vikings coming from from Denmark and other parts of Scandinavia. And indeed, it got so dangerous for a female community to be here that they collected all their precious precious possessions and their relics of their saints, including their early founders, and took them inside the walls of Canterbury, which could be defended against foreign enemies. 
and today the church today doesn't have really anything that kind of goes back to Augustine's day there's no there's just one doorway that dates from the Saxon period but otherwise no the the, the fabric is is later the the very splendid Norman nave but otherwise um, a much later church but lots of modern glass in the church commemorating Augustine Mm. and Aylmer Berg and St Mildred who was abbess here and, and how successful was Augustine's mission? Augustine's mission was initially extremely successful. He persuaded the local king, Adalbert in Canterbury, that he would convert and all his court around him. And then they had the opportunity to preach to the wider people. And then from Eastern Kent, where we are now, the mission spread west into West Kent. They established a second church at Rochester. And then they crossed the Thames and members of Augustine's original party started doing work um, in Essex in East Anglia. And then more missionaries came from Rome and still as part of the same impetus, they went all the way to Northumbria um, and converted converted the, the, the king in York. And why, why did it kind of, you said it sort of grinds to a bit of a halt? Why, why does that happen? After about 30 years, when the first Christian kings died, their sons didn't always prove so well disposed towards the Christian religion. And indeed, it seems that in royal families where there were several potential heirs, mm. some of them converted to Christianity and were baptised, but some of them chose deliberately to carry on following the old gods. And in the power struggles that followed the deaths of the first Christian kings, some of those still pagan kings then reasserted their, their paganism. And it took another mission of Irish from the Scottish monastery of Iona to Lindisfarne to convert the Northumbrians and then to trickle down back south through the country. So there are several different waves of missionaries. Yeah. And how long, how long after this period did that happen? Um, the, the last English kingdom to be converted is that of the South Saxons, which was converted by Bishop Wil- Wilfred in the 680s. So by the time the um, Minster in Thanet was founded mm. in, in the 670s, then just about the whole of England was nominally Christian, and every um, English kingdom was ruled by a Christian king. That was historian Sarah Foote. Sarah's most recent book, Monastic Life in Anglo-Saxon England, circa 600 to 900, is published by Cambridge University Press. Before our next interview, just a quick reminder that extra tickets are now on sale for our History Weekend Festival, taking place in the historic Wiltshire town of Malmesbury from the 25th to the 27th of October. We've seen huge demand and we're delighted to announce that some of the weekend's events will take place in a larger venue, the beautiful Malmesbury Abbey. This means that we can now offer for sale tickets for some of the events that were previously sold out. For full details and ticket information, please visit historyweekend.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If you've already had a look at the August issue, you'll have seen the first instalment in our new series of books interviews featuring former Home Secretary Douglas Hurd. 
I met up with Douglas to discuss his new book about the life and career of Benjamin Disraeli and why he thought the Victorian Prime Minister's approach could help improve British politics in the 21st century. I suppose the first question really is what first attracted you to writing about Disraeli? Well, I wrote a life of um, Robert Peel um, a few years ago. Um, and, and, and then one, one thing that struck me about Peel's life was how uh, relentless Disraeli uh, was in attacking him and eventually destroying his political career. Um, and so that led me on, as it were. He, he had these two talented men, they're quite different talents, and um, one of them really was hunting the other. How did that happen? Why was that so? What does that really say about uh, Disraeli? So the, the one, one, the one theme led into another. Mm. So what do you think made him such a gifted parliamentarian? I think his um, his father had a great deal to do with it, and his and his upbringing. He was not really educated in the in the sense that that, that uh, people like. Um, Gladstone and Palmerston were educated. He didn't go to a uh, school, he didn't go to a regular school, um, or he went to several schools. Um, and he read a great deal. He said, I was born in a library, mm. by which he meant that um, he was, all his life, he was surrounded by, by books. And his father was a quite a well-known author. And um, so he, he was picking up books and putting them down again all his life. Mm. Um, and that really, and, and so he learned this extraordinary sort of prose style, and um, um, he began to write books uh, in order to earn his living, and, uh, uh, and 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 they and they and they did reasonably well, only reasonably well. He wasn't a great uh, literary success, but he kept going, hmm. and um, then he decided that. Politics was really what he wanted to do. Yes. I mean, that sense of him being born in a library is interesting because later on when he's trying to work out who he is and what his identity yeah. is, he kind of returns to the library in the sense of drawing himself together. I mean, to what extent did he construct his identity, do you think? I think he, he spent his whole life constructing his identity mm. and it, it changed uh, over, 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 over time. He was always thinking about himself. And, and deeply ambitious and, and, and concerned to, as he said, climb to the top of the greasy pole. Um, and um, so everything, everything he decided um, um, was related to his own, to himself, mm. to, to, your, to your question. He was sort of building his own personality, then that bit didn't work, and, 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 and so he altered it, etc. Yes, yes. I mean, he started, for example, as a, as a dandy. He, mm. he, he, he dressed to kill um, and um, made a bit of a reputation as a dandy and, 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 and traded on that. And, and, and then that, that faded um, and he became a much more sort of sober what one calls Victorian um, uh, uh, statesman and put away what he regarded as childish things. Mm. I mean, that sense of him being in some way outside, an outsider, yes. um, do you think that was a major factor in driving his ambition? Yes, of, of course it was. It, 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 um, uh, it, 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 it was a, a starting point and a very unpromising starting point. Um, he was a Jew, he was no good with money, he, he uh, wasted it, he he was not very good in personal relationships. And um, uh, so he had a lot to handicap him. Mm. Um, 
but the, the extraordinary thing is that he he worked his way through all those difficulties mm. and in his own odd way ended up as an extraordinary man yeah i mean could you talk us perhaps through despite all those obstacles how he did climb his way to the top of the of the pole well he worked and he worked hard uh, uh, he, he, he he never shirked uh, uh, work and he um, uh, and he was good with some people he was bad with some people but he was good with people particularly with elderly ladies uh, he, 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 they, they, they shone through his life really he had many uh, women friends um, and um, they were all older than he was including Marianne whom he married and um, uh, he, he, he sort of specialised and he said to in, in, in the books he said uh, his advice to young men was to cultivate the company of elderly ladies, but they were much the most rewarding. <laughs> um, and that's how, he, that's how he found it. So it was a mixture of actually hard work, sitting down and reading things. So there was, of course, no, no, no telly, no radio, nothing of that kind. So you could just read, read, read. Hmm. Um, and uh, personal relationships, where he, he flitted and sipped. I mean, he, 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 he built up a relationship and then he knocked it down again. Uh, so he's quite ruthless with that. Um, but those two things, relationships and the actual work, which meant reading, um, were, were helped to make him what he was. Mm. I mean, it's interesting reading the book, um, how much him being in opposition with people comes through as a theme. Yes. Um, were there any major oppositions that you think really drove his career? He started his political career with the relationship with Peel, mm. uh, and that, that developed into real real hatred, really, uh, on, on, on the Israeli side, not on Peel's side. And uh, then that worked through, and he became... Uh, the next enemy was, uh, was really Gladstone. Gladstone was the AV, which stands for arch-villain, and his, in his letters and so on, the AV has been acted again, that kind of thing. Um, so those are the two, and then the, the Queen, the Queen Victoria, um, whom he cultivated, whom he flattered like mad, and... Um, she didn't see through him. I mean, there was a lot of um, sort of bogus flattery in the sense that he had his tongue in his cheek. Mm. But she did. She was a lady without a sense of humour, really, and, and she didn't. She didn't spot this. No. And she was so, to some extent, she, she enjoyed his company, and, uh, and, uh, and, and 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 his company was very important to her. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, there's another theme running through the book, which is the dispelling of myths that have grown up about his life and his politics. Um, if we can just touch on some of those, that would be excellent. Um, what do you think his thoughts were about, say, class, for instance? He didn't, I think, use very much the word class. I mean, it was at the back of his mind. Uh, but he certainly thought in terms of Britain as basically divided between the rich and the poor. Mm. And the rich were educated and had all the advantages, and the poor were, 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 were miserable. He didn't, uh, he's often thought of as being a, a one-nation Tory. That, that's just not exact. He, he, he never used that phrase himself, one nation. Mm. Um, and uh, he, he actually believed in two nations, and that the difference between the two, the rich and the poor, was so great that it couldn't really be overcome. Um, it was one of the facts of life. Mm. Of course the rich had to behave decently, um, and that was part of their, 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 their vocation, as it were. Um, but um, uh, he, he, didn't, he certainly didn't believe in the fusing of classes. 
Um, and uh, that is one of the myths. Mm. The, the, yes. myth, when you say something's a myth, it doesn't mean to say it's absolutely untrue. Mm. It just means to say that it's a, it's a belief, it's, it's a, an attitude um, which grew up around Israeli, so that lots of things are put in quotations by him, as if, as if he said them, which he never actually said. And he, he, he built a sort of reputation for himself, mm. partly deliberate, but quite largely deliberate, but it survived him. And uh, people who hardly knew him, um, he, he built a sort of image of himself, mm. um, which they paid great attention to. And he, he left behind, or he didn't, behind him they, they, it was created, the, the, the myth of the Primrose League, which was a great uh, uh, part of the myth, and, and for a time was the most important uh, political organization in the country. Mm. It really grew greatly, this idea that the, here was a prime minister who was, um, basically loved flowers, but loved the Primrose above all, um, and used the Primrose to develop his relationship with the, with the Queen. Mm. So what did that league do to kind of bolster his myth? It was, it, 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 it was devoted, you had to take an oath or swear that you would um, follow the, the, the ideals which he had um, and uh, it, it was a myth in, to his memory. Mm. And on April 21, which is the day he died, um, people in large numbers went around the country either wearing a primrose or putting primroses in places associated with him. Mm. Um, it, was, it was, for its time, it's gone now, of course, but it was a very, it was a powerful myth. Yeah. It's interesting because the book talks about how the fact that he may not have liked primroses above any other flower, which I think is kind of symbolic of the whole Well, it is. Thing, it know. is. That's right. I mean, he, he wasn't really, as, as, as Gladstone remarked, he wasn't really a man to care for simple <laughs> things. Yeah. And the primrose is a very simple flower. Mm. And uh, at other times, he said, you know, magnificent roses, yes. marvellous, yeah. so on, so on, so on, so on, when people had sent in that. Um, so I'm sure, I, I, I don't think he was, I think he'd be slightly startled and very <laughs> amused at the fact that, we've, that, 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 that the next generation chose the primrose as a way of um, honouring him. Going back to the idea of myths and obviously um, how they're slightly distorted from perhaps the truth, um, democracy is another thing that yes. he's associated with. Absolutely. Um, do you think that's wrongly that he's... Well, it is wrong. It's, again, it's, in, it's inexact. Uh, they, they, he, he certainly did not believe in, uh, in democratic rule. Uh, he, he did not believe that the people were always right. He did not believe that you had to follow uh, the people. He thought the people were important. And he was, he was a great man for... for, for, for he, the House of Commons was really his, his battlefield, mm. where he was really very good. Outside the House of Commons, he wasn't particularly brilliant uh, at making big, big speeches, they did, um, and he, uh, uh, he, he used the House of Commons as a means of um, promoting his own ideas, and it, it, the technology of the time helped him, because for the first time you had cheapish newspapers, mm. uh, and for the first time you had fast trains, which went through the night, uh, carrying Hansard counting the parliamentary reports, which of course were quite different from what they are now, mm. much fuller, um, to, the, to the ends of the kingdom. Mm. I mean, it's interesting 
there that you say pretended to believe because that's an interesting point about how he was torn between which party to join. Yes. Um, and he wrote that thing saying he'd kind of chosen his own politics. Yes. I mean, he actually wrote a little book called Who Is He? Um, entirely about himself. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, completely self-centred. Um, and he, 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 it was a, I mean, he, he was a radical mm. by nature. And he didn't believe in pompous people. He was always picking balloons. And, um, um, but he came to the conclusion in the end, having looked at all the alternatives and flirted with them, uh, that, that, that the, the, the Tory party um, had a sort of pedigree, had a sort of history, um, which, which suited him. Mm. And um, so he, 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 um, he set about remaking, he smashed the Tory party by his attack on Peel, the party split up, um, and then he, the rest of his life was spent rebuilding the mm. party and putting himself at the top. Do you, I mean, we took the book talks, and it says, obviously, it's not all kind of negative things about him, that these things were just parts of his personality. Which are his personal attributes that particularly stand out for you, or that you perhaps admire, I suppose? I think the thing which really he succeeded in doing was making um, politics interesting, exciting even. Um, he, he was excited by politics himself and he managed to find in his books and in his speeches uh, ways of putting across, particularly the young people, um, um, the, the, the excitement of politics. And he had this little group of people he was really interested in was elderly ladies and good-looking young men. Not because he was gay, but because um, those kind of people sort of swam into his orbit. Hmm. Uh, and he, he, he recruited them and became attracted by them. Um, and they were, they were part of his machinery, as it were. You mentioned before that he was a really gifted speaker, and yeah. that was part of what made him so, so powerful. Um, are there any particular speeches or highlights of his career that you um, particularly rate? I think the, 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 the nights when he's, which he spent attacking Peel in the House of Commons mm. are probably the best examples of parliamentary oratory uh, which we've got. Mm. Um, I, I don't think anybody, either before or after, was was better at this particular kind of um, what he what he did was he he kept a straight face mm. um, and he very rarely raised his voice he talked in quite an even way but he um, every now and then right at the end of the speech he he sort of opened up his batteries and really let go but he didn't do that very often mm. so that people he had this. Uh, he was a good-looking man, but he had this sallow face, um, and he specialised in keeping it straight. Yes, yes. Um, and and in, in, in not laughing at his own jokes, mm. um, although some of them were very funny. Um, it was a different style of oratory. It was quite different from. Uh, uh, it, it was more entertaining. It was calculated to amuse, yes, uh, as well as to persuade and. Um, he was just very good. Talking a bit more about his ambition, I suppose, were there any other factors other than his sense of being an outsider that you think drove him? I think he was irritated by um, pomposity. I mean, he spent quite a lot of the time 
puncturing people's mm. reputations and, and making fun of them. I don't think he really um, had anything particularly firm in the way of beliefs. Mm. Okay. He changed them. He 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 he, he was he was christened to Christ, he was christened, christened into the Church of England, and he he went to. Um, he took communion on on Easter Day. It was normal normal for him, but he wasn't a really what one I call a, a believer. No, no. Um, he was more of a mocker than a believer. Okay. Um, and he was one thing that really made him angry was the sort of what he thought of as the hypocrisy mm. uh, of people like Gladstone, who um, uh, he thought simply uh, took up causes. Uh, with the aim of just embarrassing the government, and 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 um, uh, there was therefore, therefore, he knew that he didn't really believe in anything himself. Yeah. Although he, every now and then he persuaded himself that this that was, was was very terrific, and he he resented other people who really believed in okay. things, yeah. um, and he mocked them. Mm. Um, and Gladstone was the classic example of that, um, who was in every way the, the contrary, the opposite. Yes, yes. I mean, do we get a sense why he felt he needed to mock these people? Is, is that something that we can understand, or...? I think, uh, I think he was genuinely irritated by okay. them. Okay, <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. I, I think he was, he was genuinely irritated by them. Um, and felt they, they, they deserved taking down a peg. Talking a bit about your research um, during the kind of writing of the book, uh, are there any major sources that you used, or new sources perhaps? There's a huge number of books written about Israeli, of course, and, and most of them pretty good. Um, uh, Robert Blake wrote a, a, a book uh, which we, we were brought up on, um, a big fat book, Life of Israeli, and it's a very good book. And we're not really updating him or taking him apart, uh, although we're looking at Israeli from a, from a, from a different angle, mm. um, and, and, and I think finding out some new things about him. Um, the, the, um, uh, uh, the, 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 the papers, um, the Israeli papers are at the Bodleian in Oxford. Um, they've been lent to them by the National Trust. The National Trust owns Hewenden, which was uh, Israeli's country house. Um, and um, uh, so, so we borrowed, we, we, they're now on loan to the Hewenden, uh, to the uh, Bodleian. Mm. And, and, and we went spent, Ed and I spent quite a lot of time in Oxford actually researching those papers. And they were very, the Bodleian were very helpful. What were the major challenges that you came across um, in your research, would you say? Well, the major challenges were um, many of them the result of Disraeli's own actions. They were, they were, uh, he gambled in South American shares and lost a good deal of money, which he didn't have. Mm. So he was always on the edge of having to confess debts to his to his father. Mm. Um, he, um, he, one of the causes which he took up. Um, because it was obviously going to be important, was the question of who had the vote. Mm. And he passed the second reform bill, 1867, uh, which is the second big reform bill. Um, and he passed that by a, uh, really a series of conjuring tricks. 
um, uh, cartoons of Disraeli often show him as a conjurer, mm. uh, a mystery man, an Oriental. Always is portrayed often as a, as a, as a, as a wandering Jew, mm. and uh, um, uh, he. Uh, but he, he he did take up and he did bring through the uh, the, the Act of Parliament in 1867, which greatly increased the number of people who had the vote. So to that extent, he he was a move towards democracy, though he didn't actually believe in going the whole way. No, he didn't actually believe that women should have the vote. He didn't actually believe that um, uh, down and out people. No. Uh, had the right to a vote because they, they didn't think they were qualified to use it. No. Okay. I mean, that's fascinating. Do you think that he therefore passed that um, to further his own political career rather than any yes. sense of ideals? Yes, he, he, 1867 was a crucial time because he, it was a sort of climax of his rivalry with Gladstone. Mm. Now, Gladstone fancied himself on this subject of parliamentary reform and Israelis set out to, uh, uh, to, to, to dish Gladstone. He set, set out to expose him. Mm. And um, he was very good at accepting amendments to Israeli. He, but he wouldn't accept any amendments which came from Gladstone. <laughs> he, he absolutely felt clear about that. So uh, the process of what was called dishing the wigs, getting the better of them, mm. uh, he, he pursued relentlessly, but, but particularly with an edge. Yes. Talking again about your research, what was the thing that most surprised you? I think his persistence. I mean, it was completely. It was a selfish persistence. There was no no real altruism about about uh, uh, Disraeli. He was pursuing his own aims, um, but he gosh, he stuck at it. I mean, he uh, most people would have given up. I think mm. um, when they had the first setbacks, um, Palmerston, for example, kept on winning elections and. Uh, uh, Glasson too. Um, they, they, uh, but he, he, he really stuck at it. Mm. He was, he was discouraged uh, occasionally. He wrote uh, letters to his lady friends, um, wh whom he used as a sort of sounding board, um, explaining how how difficult it all was. But he didn't give up. Mm. Um, and that's what people remembered him for, mm. the way he just stuck at it until yes. he got to the top. That's an interesting point, actually. I was going to ask you, um, what do you think his contemporaries made of him? Do we get a sense of, of their opinion towards him? Um, a lot of them thoroughly disliked and distrusted him. Um, they, they just thought he was unreliable. Mm. Um, and he had to overcome that. He had to show, um, he had to show that he could... Uh, play effectively at, at politics mm. um, and, he, and, he, and he did that um, and uh, people like Queen Victoria started by d disliking him and distrusting him but were won round mm. just by the sheer persistence mm. and by the uh, his sense of fun I mean he, he laughed at the Queen actually but laughed at her behind her back and, and actually she took all his flattery seriously yeah yeah. Um, and on that note, uh, a sense of how the British public related to him. Did they warm to him? They did, towards the end. Mm. They, they were baffled, but he was a mystery man, really, uh, which all goes with the sort of sense of magic in yes, the yes. East and so on, which surrounded him, uh, which he played on. Mm. Um, 
and uh, uh, the, the, the British public, talking really about a sort of middle class politics, the ones who had the vote in those days, um, they overcame their distrust, really. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and um, uh, came to admire him um, so that. Uh, uh, Another thing about him, which we need to mention, is is just on foreign policy. He had a a very clear idea about foreign policy. He thought that prestige was the only thing that mattered. Yes. Prestige, the prestige of a country, was what kept it going. Mm. And therefore, it because Britain had a, a big fleet um, and a lot of money, um, he felt that all the British diplomats across the world should be looking for opportunities to increase the prestige of the country, mm. uh, of Britain. And um, that, that's why he made the Queen Empress of India. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's just, again, she, she had to be top lady. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, um, and um, well, whereas with her, of course, the fact that her daughter would soon be Empress of Germany, the thought of actually being junior to her daughter Phil um, <laughs> clearly wouldn't be right <laughs> and uh, so she was on his, on his she backed this really in, in that In terms of his legacy would you say that his sense that the country's prestige needed bolstering was his major uh, achievement or were there other things in terms of how he shaped the nation I suppose The, the, the number of things uh, he, he, he increased the number of people who could vote well you could say that was a big step forward he uh, he, he didn't, having campaigned uh, to keep the Corn Laws, he didn't do anything about bringing them back when he became Prime Minister. He said was completely a dead subject as far as yeah. he was concerned. Um, uh, uh, he, he got the idea of empire, uh, which he spent a certain amount of time stressing, although I don't think he really believed in it. He, he, uh, he, he built that up so that the next generation of people was the generation which really read a lot of Kipling and uh, really believed in the, in, the, in the British Empire with capital B, capital E. Um, and and they, they were led into that by, by, by Disraeli, by some of the things that he said. Um, and he did, he brought some, he did some practical things um, which weren't really solely his own. Uh, they were his, his junior ministers, his home secretaries and so on, who did did a lot uh, of, of the legislation, but it, it was good stuff. It was helping to people to, to, to uh, buy their own houses, helping people to uh, cleaning up the rivers, mm. cleaning up uh, all the filth which went with the Industrial Revolution. And um, uh, so, but again, these things, you know, he went to sleep when these things were discussed in cabinet. <laughs> I mean, he wasn't really interested. No, okay. Um, but nevertheless, he did. He, did, he did, yeah. did some things which were worthwhile. It's a fascinating end to the book where you compare a bit the current political climate. Yeah. Um, how, how do you think today's politics compares to those of his time? Well, we, we do. We end the book with a, with a certain amount on that, on that, on that subject. We, we think that basically it's not so much people are suspicious of politics or hate politicians. It's just that they're... Um, they're bored stiff by most of it. Um, and um, I thought when I voted for television in the House of Commons, I thought that that would be a way of interesting people. 
Well, it hasn't really been. Um, and so I'm disappointed in that. I think... Uh, so therefore, we need a we need a Disraeli. We need someone who will um, um, get through to people, but in a different way. They've got to be entertained. They've got to be amused, as well as educated mm, mm. into the realities of politics. Sure. Um, yeah. um, I mean, all, all sorts of crises happen in the world, and uh, British government has to have a view. Um, uh, uh, um, but it has to be we have to catch people's imagination mm. and in a way I think um, successive governments have, um, have failed to do that okay. I know a lot more is taught in schools I know and so on and so on but there's no there's not a real spark I don't no, think. no, okay why do you think that's happened? why do you think that spark's gone out a little bit? well I think the the the, the, the Daily life, the daily political life of the country is actually rather dull, and should be should be you know it, it isn't full of excitement. But every now and then you need someone um, or people or group who make it exciting. Mm. Um, Churchill made it exciting. Churchill believed that politics were really exciting. He was excited himself. Yeah. Um, and like Disraeli, he 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 believed that he had a. Uh, a, a mission. He believed that he should get to the top, mm. and he did. And 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 therefore, um, and, and and Margaret Thatcher did to also to say had the same feeling. Um, and they, uh, you could disagree with Church, you could disagree with Margaret Thatcher, but um, they were worth listening to. Mm. And Israeli was worth listening to. Um, even if you disagree with it. I mean, are there any figures or groups in today's politics who you think come close to um, that? Well, uh, we, we, we mentioned the, the, the Boris phenomenon. Mm. I mean, here's, here's a chap who's had a political career, um, who um, uh, is now mayor of London, has been elected, re-elected, um, and who has the gift of entertaining people. Mm. Um, you, you may think that he entertains people too much. Uh, he certainly laughs at his own jokes, which the Israelis did not do. Um, uh, but he is, he is providing entertainment as well as education. Hmm. And uh, that's a good thing. Uh, and it's a good thing. And, and if people are going to be interested in politics, particularly uh, uh, young people, um, they've got to have something to latch on to. It could, can be, in some cases, passionate belief in something. Yeah. But it can also be that they are riveted by the, by the, the actual uh, eloquence or f fun, mm. humour, sure. yes. um, that, that, that um, uh, politics, uh, that, that a good politician can, can create. Okay. Are there any other characters that you think would fall into that category? No, we. I mean, we we thought and talked about this a lot, and and we. I think that the, the Boris is the is the is the is the clear example. Yes. The difficulty with Boris is that he, um, is the difficulty of switching back to a serious mode. Yes. Yeah. You know, you you feel he's always, um, planning the next joke. <laughs> well, that's not quite. What, something more than that is needed. Mm. Um, and and it's really on the whole supplied supplied that more. Yeah. So two final questions, I suppose, returning to Disraeli. Um, do you think or do you hope that this book will change our understanding of 
him and his work? I think it will, I hope it will deepen the understanding. I, I hope it will concentrate on this business of, um, that here was a man who was extremely ambitious for himself and um, people in the past have written about him as if he was, oh no, uh, driven by some unselfish ideas. I, I don't think that's true. Okay. He was out to get Israeli to the top. And, uh, uh, but he, he set about it in, a, in an exciting sort of way. Um, and um, uh, it was that sense of excitement that he conveyed more almost than anyone except Churchill. Um, excitement and enjoyment. Hmm. Um, which he provided and which was unusual in his time and almost extinct now and therefore, you know, but it's, it's needed, it's necessary if people are going to bother to vote or bother to have views. Um, and finally, what impression of Disraeli would you like readers to be, to be left with, I suppose, at the end of the book? He was a fascinating man and I think that's fascination we, we try to convey. It's different fascination from the admiration which comes out of uh, respecting someone's beliefs. Mm. Um, Israeli didn't, didn't, wasn't really very good at being respected for his beliefs because the, his beliefs were a bit um, wayward. But um, uh, he, he had that, um, uh, he had the gift of fascinating people. Mm. Um, and um, that's what's lacking now. That was Douglas Hurd. Douglas's new book, Disraeli, or The Two Lives, is out now, published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. Don't forget that you can read more about both of the subjects featured in this week's podcast in our August issue, on sale now. That's almost all for this week. Next time, my colleague Spencer Mizzen will be talking to some of the people involved in the struggle for racial equality in Bristol 50 years ago. And Linda Porter will be sharing her thoughts about the downfall of Mary, Queen of Scots. Join us for that if you can. And don't forget that we'd love to hear from you. You can share your views at podcast at historyextra.com, on Twitter at historyextra, and on facebook.com slash historyextra. The History Extra podcast was recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher.